0: then what do we do now? What does that mean? If Jesus is alive and we believe that, then how does that change us? What do we do now? So our text for today is John 20. And what we see that Jesus has resurrected and and these faithful women have come to the tomb, They, they see the tomb empty and they're leaving, but one lady stays. And that's where we come to the text in John 20, starting in verse 10. This is our text for today. But Mary stood weeping outside of the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. She still thinks Jesus is dead, and someone just stole the body. Having said this, she turned around, and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. She just wanted to know where Jesus' body was. Jesus said to her, Mary, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. She recognized him now that he said her name. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. So as we're looking today, following Easter, kind of we do this every year where we have our Easter sermon and then we always ask the question, what now? If Jesus truly is alive, what does that mean for us? Our main point for today is this, is that Jesus is inviting us into genuine faith, which changes our actions. It changes others around us and then it helps us be sent like Jesus was sent to join him in his work to renew the world. So as we begin, I want to share with you guys a story. And I really want to share uh, today, kind of in general, that you and I share with others what we have a deep passion for, and about what changes us. So if something is passionate towards us, and something changes us, that's what we want to include our friend circle in. Now, um, for those of you who may not know, I've I've lost about 120 pounds um, since November of 2019, and uh, at the beginning of 2020, for the first few months before coronavirus hit, I had a personal trainer. And what I did was I'd write down everything he told me to do. So after coronavirus hit, my personal trainer actually moved um, away, down to Franklin. But I just take all of the things that he told me to do, and I just do one big superset of uppers and lowers and cardio with weights, cardio, all that stuff. I do that three times a week, and I'm also doing couch to 5K as well on the treadmill. And so I'd kind of heard about this, this thing for years called CrossFit. Okay. And my buddy Rich started doing CrossFit a few months ago, and I joked that um, he doesn't have any skin anymore. He's just one big rock walking around. Like he's like super buff, and I've noticed a difference with him. And then uh, Aaron and Anna, which some of you might know who are part of our church, Aaron and Anna actually surprised me and let me know that they had done CrossFit for a number of years in the Nashville area. And so as Aaron and I were talking, you know, I've heard about it from a couple different people. And I kind of told Aaron, I said, you know, Aaron, I, I might be interested in like trying this thing out. And, and he was telling me about this new gym that started at Exit 24. Well, being a church planner and an entrepreneur, you know, I love to join new things and I love to support new things. So, uh, you know, Aaron and I have a friendship. Um, and so I thought, oh, maybe it might be good to like just tag along with Aaron and Anna one day and check this thing out. So I mentioned to Aaron, I, I might be interested, but Aaron immediately began to share with me um, his passion about CrossFit and which I had no clue about, but he began to share this with me and he began to share about the change that had happened in his life as he became a part of CrossFit. He talked about how he used to not be able to touch his toes, but now he's got the flexibility to do that. He talked about how he couldn't do a pull-up before, but once he began to get into CrossFit, he can do multiple pull-ups. And, and he talked about it very interestingly. He talked about the change was mental, it was emotional, and it was physical. Like he talked about the mental change of CrossFit, where he began to understand what high intensity interval training was. And he began to understand the workouts and and, and going to CrossFit for a period of time began to teach him things. His mind began to change about health. He said that there's a community aspect to this. There's a communal aspect to CrossFit. And by the way, everybody I've talked to has said the same thing. The number one thing about CrossFit is the community that you're in, right? So there's a communal, relational, emotional connection with CrossFit. And finally, of course, there's a physical transformation that you actually know how to do the exercises, where you're doing them quickly and with proper form, and and you begin to see this physical transformation. So so CrossFit has changed Aaron's life. It's changed my friend Rich's life and and it's changed many of my friends' lives Um, in in multiple ways. It just influences everything about their life and it really becomes a lifestyle. It becomes a community. And so um, I told Aaron, you know, I might be interested in this. So here's what Aaron did. I just thought it was so interesting. First thing he did was he called the owner and talked to him, right? And then what he did was he found a good event that it would be helpful for a newcomer to come to It's called a WAD, okay? And then he called me back. I didn't have to reach back out to him. Aaron actually called me back and he gave me the details. He told me what a Wad was. I didn't know what a Wad was. It's a, a community workout, right? And so what Aaron assured me of is that new people are going to be there. So he found a, a connection point for me that would be appropriate for someone new to CrossFit, right? Then he communicated with the person who runs this CrossFit gym. Then he called me back and said, okay, here's the details. It's a community workout. A bunch of new people are going to be there. He pretty much said the only experts are the experts, right? So the only experts are the guy that's going to be leading it. So everybody there is just still learning. They're in a learning phase. Um, He said, everyone's welcome, regardless of your skill level or your understanding of CrossFit. He told me to show up 15 minutes early because they start right at nine, it's important to be there early. He gave me the time, he gave me the location, and he actually got the consent form. So if I wanted to get it filled out beforehand, I'd get there. And then he checked with me the day before. All right. Now here's, I got a question for you. This is gonna sound like a dumb question, but did CrossFit have to train Aaron on how to do this? Like they didn't like do a training on how to invite people to CrossFit, right? They just Aaron just did it, right? And he just naturally shared about his passion, right? He, no, CrossFit doesn't like train you on how to invite people to CrossFit. It just comes naturally because it's something that's changed Aaron's life and it's something he's passionate about. It's changed him in a multifaceted way, mentally, emotionally, it's changed him physically. And, and he just wants to share it with his friends. And he, it came out of a genuine place of transformation, but it also came out of a genuine place of friendship with me. Like we've been friends for years, And so, like, he just loves me as a friend and wants me to enjoy what he enjoys, right? And my friends, this is what we're talking about today, and how deeply, authentically being changed by Jesus, it then motivates us to naturally share this message as a missionary. What Aaron was doing is being an evangelist for CrossFit. (laughs) And so I want to encourage you guys that if you're naturally, authentically changed by Jesus you will naturally authentically share and it won't come across as weird or strange or awkward. And my friends, if we're not deeply changed by Jesus, we won't authentically share this message. And so what I've found is that there's two different types of, of people in Clarksville that maybe feel the inclination or maybe even the guilt for not sharing their faith. Um, there's some people that don't share their faith at all, that don't really like hanging out with people that don't believe what they believe which by the way is the exact opposite of Jesus because Jesus loved hanging out with people that didn't believe that he was the Messiah and he spent incredible amounts of time with them, right? But there's, there's, there's some people that just don't really have uh, relationships with people that don't, that don't believe what they believe. Or what I've found is that people don't have those natural relationships, but they choose to share their faith in awkward, forced, unnatural ways. Like they'll have these contrived events, They'll like awkwardly give away things or give away a track and try to get into these street conversations with people. And I just look at the pattern of Jesus and I don't see that. Like I see Jesus, of course, preaching in the common place of the time where people would preach in discourse, which was in the marketplace. But I see Jesus genuinely spending time with people, befriending them, And then they are transformed by a genuine, authentic relationship with Jesus. And my friends, if we are deeply changed, if we truly believe that Jesus is alive, then we join Jesus on his mission to change the world. And what it does is it just comes very naturally. And and it's not weird or awkward. And so I'm going to talk about three things today. I'm going to talk about how faith drives our actions. I'm going to talk about how faith facilitates others to encounter Jesus. And finally, I'm going to talk about how faith draws us into being sent like Jesus. So first, faith drives our actions. Look with me at John 20, verse 18. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. So last week, we looked at how faithful women who first saw the empty tomb of Jesus They leave and they run back and say, hey, the tomb is empty. But Mary stayed behind. She was not yet believing that Jesus was resurrected. And and she was so confused, they thought someone had stolen his body, even though he had kept saying over and over again, I'm going to die and rise again. But then she has this encounter with Jesus in the garden. And then what she saw totally convinces her that he is resurrected from the dead. And she runs back and tells everyone. And so she says back to them, she says, I have seen the Lord. Now I want to just note this, this one phrase is so powerful because what Mary doesn't bring is apologetic arguments. She doesn't say, well, look at the, look at the record of Jesus' teaching from the past three years. She doesn't bring logical arguments or apologetic arguments. She doesn't bring philosophical musings. Well, I wonder if this was a ghost or if this was this or that. She doesn't bring apologetic arguments, philosophical musings. What she says is her experience. I have seen the Lord. She's saying, this is what happened to me. I've seen him with my own eyes. And she's not saying, well, this is just my truth and you can have your truth. No, she's plainly saying what happens. This is either the truth or it's a lie. She said, I saw Jesus alive. That's either a, a definitive statement that says she either experienced it or she didn't, and she's lying. Now, this is so crazy because remember, all this happened in the morning, okay? So you, it, that, the text actually fasts us forward to the evening. It says that in the evening time, the doors were locked for fear of the Jews. So the men heard this. Some of them even ran to the tomb and saw that it was empty and they were still afraid and not yet changed. But my friends, I bet you my next paycheck on the fact that Mary wasn't afraid because she's seen Jesus face to face, eyeball to eyeball. Like there is no question in her mind that she saw him. And here's the deal. Mary's bravery and persistence allowed her to experience something that the other people, with their lack of bravery, with their fear, and with their timidness, and they just kind of gave up and locked the doors, hoping that the Jews wouldn't come and crucify them. But Mary's bravery and grit and persistence allowed her to experience something that other people did not experience. And my friends, here's the deal. She still doubted. Like she saw the freaking empty tomb, and she still doubts that Jesus is alive until she saw him with her own eyes but she stayed at the empty tomb. She was faithful. She didn't have a lot of faith, but she had a little bit of faith and she was persistent and she stayed. And my friends, Jesus met her at the empty tomb precisely because she needed him at the empty tomb. You see, in Jesus's perfect resurrected body, he had all the power in the world. He had just conquered death and hell and the grave. He had just suffered immensely all of the punishment that you and I deserve and every person deserves for all of human history. He had all of that on him on the cross while suffering immensely physically as well. And he conquered death. He walks out of the tomb. He's living, he's breathing, he's alive again. But my friends, nothing was more compelling to him than the weeping of a doubting woman in the garden of his resurrection. Her humility and her brokenness is what drew him to her. And he appears and changes her life. My friends, I want you to see that faith drives the actions of Mary. She heard the angels. She believed when her eyes saw Jesus. And then she obeyed Jesus' instructions to go tell my brothers I am ascending to my father. In verse 17. Now, the the question is, what what does this mean for us 2,000 years later? What now, right? If Jesus is alive, what now? That's the title of our sermon. And we're going to go through with each point. If this is true, then what now? What do we do now? First thing is, hear, believe, and obey. My friends, we can be changed to be on mission if we hear, believe, and obey Jesus. And when we're changed, here's the deal we don't need special training. Aaron didn't go through the five-week class on how to share CrossFit. He just was changed by CrossFit and loves me and loves this thing and helped me figure it out. My friends, we simply need to share our story with others. And here's the deal. We don't have to manipulate environments to witness or evangelize. We don't have to be um, subtly like, hey, just come, let's hang out and then like pull out a Bible and to track with people that aren't ready to hear that yet if we experience the good news, we can speak plainly about our experiences. Like when you ask people to share their story, and then they ask you to share your story. If your story is, is rooted and connected with Jesus, you're naturally going to share about what has most impacted you in your life. And if it hasn't truly impacted you, you won't naturally share it. But if it has truly impacted, if you've heard this message, believed it's true for you in humility, you've obeyed by making Jesus Lord over your life, then this means that your life is not the same. And so you can share your genuine experiences, not inauthentically. And I can't tell you how many times people in Clarksville have told me, I don't want to go to church because people there are fake, phony, and false. And they talk about you one way to your face and talk about you another way to your back. It happens all the time. Here's why, because I don't think most people that go to churches in Clarksville or around the world have genuinely met Jesus. I don't think that's the case, and I think that's why the culture of our churches is so awkward and strange for people that don't yet follow Jesus, that are exploring his message. And, and they see these tracks, and they see these like, like kind of attempts to like meet people on the street. That's just not natural. That's just not how normal people live. I don't think that's how Jesus designed us to do mission. Because when people are genuinely changed, then your mission flows out of a heart that has heard, believed, and obeyed this message. And as you walk in faith, you naturally begin to share it with other people. Genuine experience in faith drives us to act. And so if the desire isn't there, then my friends today, I want to encourage you to consider that you might need to follow Jesus today. You might need to believe the message of Jesus is true for you and obey by making Jesus Lord over your life. So we see that faith, genuine faith, hearing, believing, obeying the message of Jesus, it then drives our actions. Next, we see that our faith facilitates others to encounter Jesus. So, So faith changes us, but then faith changes people around us. Look with me at John 20, 19. On the evening of that day, we kind of read this before, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, look what happens. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace. Be with you. Now remember, this happened in the morning, right? Mary seeing the empty tomb, encountering Jesus, all this stuff as the sun is rising, which is kind of such a beautiful picture. You can see the sun dawning on a new era of God's salvation. Jesus meeting Mary, the first person he meets in his resurrected body, this broken, doubting woman who's weeping in the garden of his resurrection. He meets her, he says her name, he gives her new identity, he gives her new purpose, he gives her a mission. And then the whole day, everybody's locked in the room. Because that happened in the morning, right? It says now it's evening. And they're still locked in there. Look at this. Mary's faith was the precursor to Jesus's arrival. Mary's obedience to share was the precursor to Jesus's arrival. And my friends, I think this is vital to the story. You see, she heard the angels but didn't believe. She waited at the empty tomb of Jesus. He appeared and she believed and she obeyed. But her faith in the midst of the disciples' unbelief was the preparation for the disciples to have an encounter with Jesus. The disciples still didn't believe. They saw the empty tomb. They thought somebody stole it. They're scared to death. The doors are locked. They want nothing to do with anybody because they're scared to death they're gonna get crucified too. And here's the deal. Mary spent the whole day believing for them. She spent the whole day in faith on their behalf. She told them about Jesus before Jesus showed up. And I believe that is her faith that was preparing. That day of faith was preparing the disciples to encounter Jesus. Her faith and her actions, they were modeling for the disciples. They were modeling for the men what they could have if they believed. Mary was joy-filled. Mary was hope-filled. Mary had referred to Jesus by the most intimate name that she had for him, Ravani, teacher. Her faith was the precursor to the disciples' faith. Now, my friends, what does this mean for us 2,000 years later? What do we do now? We must model genuine faith to others like a missionary. That's what Mary did. She was modeling, this is what it could look like if you believe in Jesus. You could have this joy too. And this especially happens when difficult times come. My friend, when difficult times come, our response is a megaphone to those around us. And they're observing us. People observe you when difficult times happen. Will we get bitter, angry, stressed, and anxious? Or we will respond in faith, trust, obedience, and peace? My friends, the proof is in the pudding. Our genuine faith is attractive to others. It is winsome. When you can approach difficulty and trials with a genuine faith in Jesus, where he's truly transforming you as you spend time with him, as you read the Bible. This is why I emphasize people being in a group and reading the Bible so much. Like you need to consistently spend time with Jesus in prayer and the reading of the scriptures so that you personally are changed. And then it's authentic when you share about your life. It's not some rote memory thing that you've had to memorize. It's not some Romans road track that you're trying to walk people through. It's actually your life being shared with another person because you are being transformed By Jesus, as he transforms you, you then share that transformation with others. And then when difficult times hit, then you respond in genuine faith because you've been pouring the concrete of your life. Jesus is like the concrete. You've been pouring the foundation of your life into Jesus for hours and years and decades so that when the real difficult times come, you respond out of genuine faith. Now, there's a friend of mine. His name is Kendall. And he was with our church in Annapolis. And he was actually on the elder team there. And uh, this man has been faithfully following Jesus for 40 years. He's been reading the scriptures consistently. He's been praying consistently. He's been serving faithfully in the local church. He leads a business in which he's trying to love and bless his employees. And his wife got breast cancer. And I was in a men's group with him. We met at 6 a.m. every Wednesday morning at a coffee shop in Eastport, Maryland, Eastport, and as a suburb of Annapolis, and and every single week he would talk about man, this was really challenging. He was it was difficult. We shed tears together, but man, that man never once doubted Jesus. That man never once said why me. He never once said why my wife. He just loved his wife faithfully through it. He had a a supreme confidence that God was good, and he carried himself with peace. Why? Because for 40 years, he had been laying the foundation of faith. And I'll tell you, his faith impacted other people in his life. His faith allowed others, facilitated others to encounter Jesus because he was faithful and consistent over a long period of time. And if you've been in a men's group with me, you've heard me say this a thousand times. Eugene Peterson says, long obedience in the same direction. This is what he's calling us to. This is how you can live life on mission. It's got to flow out of you spending time in the word, spending time with Jesus, letting the message of Jesus break your heart, convict you of sin, draw you into repentance and faith, and then lead you into a life of peace and grace and rest. And when you do that over years, when the cancer hits, when your child dies, when your parent dies, you can have a firm foundation and then your response is what people are drawn to. You can model for others what it would look like if they followed Jesus. And my friends, what I want people to say about people in our church is I want people to look at you and say, if this is what it looks like to follow Jesus, I'm in. I want that. That's what I want for every person in our church. If this is what it looks like to follow Jesus, I want that. You see how it's winsome? You see how it's genuine? You see why what you do every day, the micro decisions that you make with your time, the micro decisions that you make to come to a group where people will hold you accountable to being in the word, of spending time with Jesus, of being vulnerable with a group of people, those micro decisions you make can change the trajectory of your life. It can change the trajectory of your legacy. It can change the trajectory of generations, following you, if you're a faithful mom, a faithful dad, over a long period of time, you can change your children and your children's children and your children's children's children and break generational curses because of your faithfulness to Jesus, motivated by the gospel, motivated by Jesus being alive, motivated by grace. So faith facilitates others to encounter Jesus. Finally, we see that faith draws us into being sent like Jesus. Look with me at John twenty verses 20 to 21. When he had said this, Jesus said this, he showed them his hands and his sides. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Now I want to just focus on one part of this, which is the last phrase, as the father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. My friends, this is a big deal. This is day one, post-resurrection. Jesus said we have a mission, that we are being sent out. And he says, in the nature of my sentness, I am sending you. As I have been sent, so send I you. So in the nature of Jesus' sentness, we are sent. So in order for us to understand how we are sent with our mission for our life, we have to first understand how Jesus was sent for his life. So the question that we have is, how was Jesus sent? So in order for us to understand how Jesus was sent, I just want to look at one verse from earlier on in John's book. Look with me at John 1:14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I think in this, we see that Jesus' sentness was four things. It was personal, it was incarnational, it was father-centric and it was grace and truth filled. So let me go through all of those. First, it was personal. It says the word, which is Jesus, became flesh. My friends, Jesus is a real person. Look with me at Philippians 2 that affirms this. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of Men, My friends, he was personally sent, and he personally came. He laid aside his rights and his privileges to enter, truly enter into the human experience. He came personally, and he lived a personal life with friendships and emotions and all of these things. Next, we see that the nature of Jesus' sentness was incarnational. It says he dwelt with us. Now, the summary of Jesus' sentness is really in this one word, and it's incarnate. He became flesh. He dwelt. He conversed. He lived. He embodied all the fullness of God to the world by becoming like you and me. He was present with us. That's what the word Emmanuel means. We hear this a lot around Christmas time. It's Emmanuel, God with us. My friends, Jesus lived with us and among us. He suffered with us and for us. He fully embodied the fullness of God in a fully human form. He was 100% God, 100% man. And my friends, this has powerful implications for how we are sent. But Jesus did not ask us to come up to him. Jesus came down to us incarnate. He came into the world to dwell with us. Next, he says it's father centric. He says he's from the Father, right? Jesus is from the Father. My friends, Jesus lived his entire life. an entire life of ministry doing what his father told him. How often, side note, how often do you and I want to do our own thing and get really angry when we have to submit to God? Well, guess what? Jesus was God himself and was perfect, and yet he submitted to his father. Look with me at John 5, 19. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son of man can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. Look, Jesus was fully obedient to his father, fully submissive to his father. He was fully in line with his will, and he was also God, right? But he's modeling for us how his whole life was, was surrounded, was wrapped around something other than himself. It was wrapped even a, not even wrapped around his cross. It was wrapped around his father. He did what his father told him to do. And then finally, we see that, the, that Jesus was sent with grace and truth. He was full of grace and truth. My friends, Jesus extended grace to those who needed it the most. Those who weren't religious, who didn't look, sound, and act like him. Wherever Jesus went, those who were the outcasts and the sinners, they loved Jesus. And the religious hated him because he extended this unmerited favor towards others. See, the religious people felt like they earned it. When really, the Bible says that they can't earn it. And so that's why they hated Jesus, because he was giving unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor towards the weak, the poor, the sick, and the sinner. Now, he says, full of grace and truth. Jesus communicated the truth of his Father's love to the people that he ministered to. The truth of Jesus always brings life. Jesus even says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus says, I'm the truth, I'm the life. Jesus says to them, No one can come to the Father but through me. There's not every road does not lead to God, but there's only one road, and that's the road of Jesus. So in summary, the sentence of Jesus was personal, incarnational, father-centric, and grace and truth filled. So guess what? Surprise, surprise. What's our sentence look like? Well, not going to come as a shock to you. Our sentence is personal. It's incarnational. It's Jesus-centric. And it's grace and truth filled. So let me walk through what that looks like. My friends, first, it's personal. People are not projects. It's not about what others do. It's about who they are. So the goal is not sin management. The goal is not to get people to stop sinning. The goal is to help them be transformed by Jesus by genuinely befriending people, entering into their lives, entering into their story, loving them like Jesus loved them and sharing how you've been transformed. That's all you need to do. It's not project-based. And my friends, I truly believe this is why street evangelism is like not the pattern of Jesus. Like Jesus spoke truth to large crowds for sure, but he truly shared the good news effectively to a much smaller group of people. He shared most of his life with 12 people. He had 70 close followers around him that he sent out on missionary journeys. He shared his life with his disciples. My friends, you and I should too. It's gotta be personal. There's gotta be a relationship there. But it's not just that. We have to not just have personal relationships with people. We have to incarnate into their life. We have to leave our comfortable and familiar little bubbles and move out into the world, into your neighborhood, into your community, with your friends, neighbors, co-workers. My friends, don't invite others to come where you're comfortable. Go to where other people are comfortable. Meet them where they are. This is the nature of Jesus. Jesus said, don't come up to heaven because we couldn't have, right? But Jesus came, became uncomfortable for you and me. And he became the most uncomfortable on the cross, taking on all of our sin and guilt and shame. You can carve out a little time to invite somebody over for dinner. You can go over to somebody else's house for dinner. You can invite someone to God for coffee, even if it feels awkward or weird. Like, Jesus did like a whole host of things for us. All he's inviting us to do is like share our story with people. Like, you can do that, it's attainable incarnate into people's lives, incarnate the love of God to others. So a couple questions, a couple diagnostic questions that I'd love for you to know the answer to. What's the language of the people around you? One of the first things I learned here was some military jargon. I learned what a DD-214 is, learned what PCS means, right? As I'm learning about our culture, I need to learn some of the language of our friends here in Clarksville. What are some of the unique hurts, pains, and troubles that the grace of Jesus and the truth of the gospel can bring healing into What are some of the unique hurts and pains and struggles? This is why a couple weeks ago, we did a whole sermon on the second suffering of killing because that's a big deal, especially even with people in our neighborhood. What are the unique burdens that our friends in Clarksville have and how does Jesus bring freedom to those burdens? Burdens of guilt, burdens of shame, burdens of their marriage falling apart. How does Jesus bring healing and freedom to those things? How does Jesus speak to the soldier the military wife going through a difficult time with her husband's deployment. How does Jesus speak to your neighbors and friends? My friends, we are required by the sentence of Jesus to understand the answers to these questions. We gotta figure these out. And we're required by the sentence of Jesus to lay down our rights, to lay down our preferences, even from expressing our political views, to love and serve others with the grace and truth of the gospel. We have to lay down our rights. That's what it means to incarnate the gospel. Next, it's got to be Jesus-centric. My friends, our mission, our sentness is not about us. It's about Jesus. Jesus doesn't need you. He can accomplish his mission without you. But he is inviting you in. It's like if I want to be an effective fisherman, I don't invite my two-year-old nephew to come with me. All right? He's going to mess things up. He's going to scream and shout. He's going to paddle and mess with the water. He's going to mess up the line. But why do I invite my nephew to come with me fishing? It's not because I want to catch more fish because I want to spend time with my nephew. At the end of the day, Jesus can do the work of a missionary better than you and I can, but he's inviting us to join him because he wants a relationship with us. He wants our lives to be centered on him. My friends, Christ's disciples don't take over Jesus's mission. The mission continues and is effective already, and we just join in the good work of God. It's Jesus's mission. It's really your and I's partnership. So, my friends, it's Jesus centric. Our lives, this is why your personal devotion to Christ, reading the Bible, praying, coming to a discipleship group, is the most important part of our mission because it's got to flow. Loving your wife well, loving your children well, being patient, kind, grace filled, and at peace. Those things are so important to mission because they're actually going to flow out of a genuine place. Finally, grace and truth filled. My friends, showing undeserved, unearned favor towards others is what grace is. Not hostility, not Facebook fights, not silly arguments, not divisiveness, but genuinely showing the grace towards others, thinking the best of others. That's what grace is. And then also truth. My friends, we need to be prepared to plainly explain and share the good news of Jesus, which brings freedom in life when it's appropriate. We need to be prepared for those things. My friends, Jesus invites his followers into a new way of viewing themselves and the world. Instead of screaming, I can do what I want. I have my rights like a child. Jesus calls us to be like adults, to lay down our rights, to be constrained in our speech by love for God and love for others that may feel differently than us. So the question is, what does this mean for us 2,000 years later? What do we do now? The last point is this, be on mission like Jesus. Don't contrive or be weird about it. Genuinely develop a friendship with your neighbors, friends, co-workers, and family. And as you're changed by Jesus and the time is appropriate, share your story. When people are interested in how you've changed, you can ask them if they want to hear about the story of God in about five minutes. We have a training, actually, that you can do. And I mentioned you don't need to be trained on all different things, but there is some help to be, like, concise, to be able to concisely share about specific elements of the gospel story. And so you can go to our website, redeeminghope.org slash three circles. It's the number three and then circles. And then what? there's a little three-minute video um, on there to help you be able to concisely share the story of God. And my friends, let me encourage you, it's not about notches on your belt. It's not about how many people can I win to the faith. It's actually about joining Jesus in his mission and becoming more like Jesus in the process. Which means that, again, like I said before, being kind to your wife, loving people genuinely, loving them well, all of these things are part of your mission. So I want to ask you, have you had an encounter with the risen Jesus? If not, then please don't share out of guilt or obligation. You have to share the truth that you have personally experienced. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, are you struggling with purpose and meaning? Are you struggling this? this? Hearing, believing, and obeying the message of Jesus, that Jesus is alive, and he's taken the punishment that you deserve, that gives your life an eternal impact. You can have a vision and a mission for your life that can change generations of people if you follow Jesus. I truly promise you, that there's nothing better than joining Jesus in his work in the world. It's hard, but there's nothing better. If you are a follower of Jesus, are you struggling to share the story with others? My friends, maybe this needs to be more real to you. So I wanna encourage you, be in a group consistently where you're reading the Bible, praying, and being held accountable to follow the life and teachings of Jesus. Be in a group consistently. Pray sincerely and frequently for people that don't know Jesus in your life. Write their names down and pray for them. You'll find that you'll get into way more conversations when you pray for people. And then I want you to live ascent. So see the message is personal. See yourself as incarnating the gospel. See your life is surrounded, centered on Jesus. And be grace and truth filled. And I want to end our time by this beautiful passage from 2 Corinthians 2, talking about what this means for you and me. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. My friends, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are called to be the sweet smell of God's grace to others around you. I want to encourage you. Let's do that this week.